So one of the things I am probably worst at in the world is table quizzes. And in, in particular, the table quiz rounds to do with music or TV. That's so one of the things that Zoe takes the mic out of me occasionally because I, I am woeful when it comes to celebrities. Um, if you were to show me a picture of Madonna, Celine Dion, and I can't even think of another famous person off my head, I, like, I wouldn't be able to tell them apart. The odds are, if you ask me, if, do you know Celine Dion, I would be more likely to say something like, are they anything to the Dion's of Kilray? Um, it, it's, not, it's not the area in which I'm very good at. Um, if, I, if I know somebody, I kind of, it takes all of my attention and brain power to remember the people uh, and everything that's going on in front of me to then think about people who I will never meet in 100 million years is then just beyond what my brain needs to know and so I, I don't tend to focus on it. But yeah, it's funny because we, we, have, we have two ways in which we kind of know people in our society. So we, all, we know each other in around church. We know, we, we, we know each other to go and say hello to in the street. We know each other to shake hands. We know each other to have conversations and to share problems and concerns with. And then there's people who we just know about. You know, we know about the celebrities we see on TV. We know about the person we read about in the magazine. We know about the person whose biography we've just read. We know about them, but we don't know them. And as we've been working through the book of Romans, what we're trying to communicate and what we're trying to get across is that we move from an idea of knowing something about God to knowing God personally. Moving from knowing about there being some abstract deity up in the sky to knowing what his personality is like and to knowing what his character is like to knowing God in the same way that we know the people around us as something real, something tangible, something that changes the way our day-to-day lives are lived. And we've seen this week by week as we've looked at one very particular aspect of God's character, God's righteousness. And righteousness is a word we don't really use to describe people. It's, it's not a word in our common vocabulary at all. And I think the best way to try and maybe think about righteousness is, is knowing the right thing. It's not just that God is right and that, you know, he, know what, he knows what's right and so you ought to do as you're told kind of thing. It's that he knows what is right and that he knows what is just. You know, we might think we know what's best for people, but really it pales in comparison to God. We might think we know something is good, but really it pales in comparison to the way in which God knows goodness. We might think something is lovely, but it pales in comparison to the way in which God knows something is lovely. God is righteous in that he knows justice perfectly. The ethical problems that we find ourselves wrapped up in in day-to-day life don't happen to him because he is righteous and he knows justice perfectly, and he knows goodness perfectly, and he knows holiness perfectly, and he knows all the things we ought to be seeking after perfectly in a way that we could never know. And so he's righteous. And that changes the way we view him. And that's what we've been saying throughout the book of Romans. That's that one big word that we've been using to kind of stretch through it. And um, the series has been called The Good News of the Righteousness of God. 
And we see firstly that, that you know, the righteous would live by faith in the first week. And then we saw in the second week that there's a reality to God's righteousness. And that reality of God's right, righteousness means that whenever we compare our righteousness to his, we realize how much we lack it. And the book of the Romans works its way where when Paul's writing to the believers, he says, well, you look at the society you live in, and they're in Rome. You know, Rome, ancient Rome, was not known for its moral virtues. Rome, ancient Rome was the sort of place where a good night out was watching some guys kill each other, um, where if you had a big meal, um, there would be a separate room for you to go and vomit in, so you could then come back and enjoy more of the meal. Rome was not a place filled with lovely, nice, virtuous things. Rome was thoroughly unrighteous. And so Paul writes and says, look around you and you can see that the, the, the Romans around you are all unrighteous and everybody in the church is sitting going, yep, 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 we agree with that. Yeah, aren't they all awful out there? And then we move to last week where then Paul begins to turn his attention and begins to talk about the Jewish uh, believers as well and says, but you're unrighteous as well. And he began to unpack how if you're trying to earn your righteousness through law, it won't work. And then it ends then in, in that verse that, in 3 verse 10, you know, we see it written on like signposts on trees in the, in, in, uh, in the middle of the countryside here in Ulster. In Romans 3 verse 10 that says, no one is righteous, not even one. And Paul, over the past two and a half chapters, has been covering the hard ground of trying to show us that we're not quite as good as we think we are. And when we, we compare that to God's righteousness, it's almost like polar opposites. And that's some, something that we might dread and that's something we might be afraid of and that might sound like terrible news because we're being told that we're not good. But that's how this passage begins. And whenever we hear a but in scripture, it means something wonderful is usually about to follow. And in verse 21, God says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So it's the first thing we're gonna look at today is what, what does that mean? What does it mean for righteousness to now be made known apart from the law? So I want you to do a wee bit of pretend and play a wee bit of pretend with me. Pretend you're a first century Jew. Um, if you have sandals uh, near your seat, pull them on. Um, if you're a first century Jew, righteousness means one thing really, really in particular, and that means following the law of God. And the law of God's made up of three things. It's made up with ceremonial laws, it's made up with civil laws, and it's made up with moral laws. And the way we understand it is we often try to think, well, if God made a law, it's, it, that's between right and wrong, and we confuse moral law with all the different laws of God. But the different laws have different purposes and different reasons. So you've probably witnessed in some debate on Facebook or through something on the TV where a Christian's been interviewed, and somebody will say to them, well, if you believe the Bible's true, why don't you, or why do you wear clothing that's made of two different materials? Because it says in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that you shouldn't wear clothing made of two different materials. Or if you're a Christian, why do you eat prawns? Since it says in the Old Testament you shouldn't eat shellfish. Why do you eat bacon and black pudding? 
Whenever it says in the Old Testament and the Bible that you shouldn't follow them, why do you not follow those laws? And the reason is those laws were made with a very particular reason. And that was the people of God in the Old Testament were meant to show something of the purity of God and something of the righteousness and goodness of God to the world around them. So the way to show the purity of the God that they worshipped was they stayed away from clothing that was made of any old scrap that they could get hold of and mucked in together. Rather, they, they wore clothes that were pure, made of the one material. Instead of them eating animals that are happy enough to roll around in their own filth, they, they would eat animals that were only deemed clean because the idea was is that, well, if our God is clean and pure and good, we want to be clean and pure. And so the way they conveyed that to the world around them was they didn't eat that meat. And for them, under, for a first century Jew who would have read this letter, what they're thinking is, is that, well, that's what it means to be righteous. If I'm going to be righteous, it's the outward things that I do. It's the outward rules that I follow. It's the outward ceremonies that I, I perform. It's the way I purify myself correctly before I eat a meal. It's the way I wash myself appropriately before I would go into temple worship. And Paul turns that on its head. Because he says, in a sense, you think you know what righteousness is? Here's what righteousness is. He says that in verse 22, righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you're a first century Jew and you hear this, and you're thinking, yeah, but, but I followed all these rules. I must be better than these Gentiles, than these pagans. Because these pagans didn't follow any of your rules. I've been following all the rules. Does that not mean I'm a better person? Does that not mean I'm better off? God, does that not mean that I have some better right to access you than all of those pagans? And Paul says, no. We all come to God on the one basis. And it's through his son. And if we're gonna play the game of who can follow the laws of the best, that will lead to death because nobody is following the laws perfectly. But there's only one guy who has. There's only one person who has ever kept all of the ceremonial law, all of the civil law, all of the moral law, all of the laws that the people of God followed in the Old Testament, and that's Jesus. And only if you have faith in him can any of your righteousness be counted as good because the only righteousness that counts in your life is the righteousness you get from him. One of the wonderful things we believe as Christians is not just that it's not just that whenever we, we, we confess our sins to God and we ask for forgiveness and we have faith in Jesus that all our sins get forgotten about. But we believe that our failures and our weaknesses and our sins are discarded from us and placed on the Son of God on the cross. And his goodness, the perfect life he lived that we could never copy or imitate, is taken off him and wrapped around us. So that whenever God looks at us, it's not just that he's, it's not just that he's looking at sinful James O'Neill, but he sees the righteousness that Jesus Christ won. And my sins are forgotten and cleansed and washed away. But there's a problem with this. 
for Paul's audience. And this is the second thing we see. If you look down at verse 25, Paul writes, but God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Why did he do this? He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. One of the things that me and Zoe love to do is listen to true crime podcasts. Um, Whenever we went on holiday to Donegal a couple of years ago, we listened to a true crime podcast about a murder that had taken place in a very similar area in Ireland for some reason, where possibly gluttons for punishment. But I want to tell you a story about a judge. There's a judge and two people come before him. And they're issued with a crime. And if you've you've ever read Truman Truman Caputo's In Cold Blood, Two people have walked in and they have brutally murdered three people. And there's a difference between, they, have, they both were as complicit in the murder, they both were involved in the planning as much as the other, they were both involved as much in executing the murder, they both fled with the same uh, speed away from the crime scene and wanted to cover it up. But whenever they were brought into court, both pled guilty. Both said that they were sorry both apologized profusely and said that they regretted it and said that if they could go back and change it all, they would. But there was a difference. One of them had went and written a card of condolence to the family. One of them had, had given flowers to the family to put on the grave. One of them had written letter after letter saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry if your family can ever forgive me. Please forgive me. And both of them are given the same sentence by the judge. Is that fair? Because for the Jews who are sitting hearing this, they see themselves as the person who has done the good thing over and over and over again. So why, are they, why do they have to go the same three way? Why, why, why is God not allowing them to be privileged in some way over this other person? Because they did the good things. They did the nice things. They behaved well. And God, as the judge says, look, you don't get it because that's not the way justice works. And so this is why something really important that Paul says here is that God makes his son the sacrifice. There's no other sacrifices that count towards our sin outside of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus counts as the perfect sacrifice. Why? Because in doing so, God demonstrates that he is just and that he is righteous. Because everything else peels away in comparison whenever you look at the sacrifice that the Son of God gave for the people. Because otherwise, what happens is, is that there becomes a tiered system of, you know, these people are further on, these people are better than these ones, these people have done more of this. And God flattens all of that out and says, we are all sinners, we are all unrighteous and have fallen short of the glory of God. But good news Because God is just and he's righteous, he's given all of us the exact same way and the exact same access point to come to know him through faith and Jesus. 
through his atonement, through his sacrifice on the cross, once and for all, for all of our sins. Not that we have to try and now earn his favor by playing lip service to him or trying to just do really nice things to the world around us, but rather only through Jesus and only through him and his sacrifice does that righteousness that we want get imputed over to us. Just as it's only through Jesus that our sins are forgiven, it's only through Jesus we live a life that's pleasing to God. And so we live... We live realizing that our very best is never good enough to give God. We live life realizing that no matter how hard we try, we're going to mess up and fail. And in some ways, this idea that, you know, we place our faith in Jesus Christ to forgive our sins, um, many of you are, because we, that is the core of the Christian faith, and you hear it again, and for some of you, that's maybe lost its importance or maybe lost its, its shock factor or its magnificence. And I wonder, if I, can, I wonder if I can help make it have a bit more significance in, in asking to think about it this way. Whenever we doubt that we're really a Christian, you know, whenever, whenever somebody is annoying you at work and you, your anger flips and you say something you regret, or you do something you wish you had never done and you're sitting five minutes later going, why on earth did I do that? Whenever that one sin that you are plagued with doesn't seem to go away and it just gets harder and harder and harder to defeat. And the voice of Satan says in the back of our heads, are you really a Christian if you keep doing that? Are you really a Christian if you say that? This is this gospel, this righteousness of God revealed is that the place we ought to look is not inwardly to see, have I followed the laws correctly? Have I observed all the right rules? But rather, am I looking to my Savior? And am I trusting in Him? You know, faith in Jesus is an incredibly passive thing. Um, in the catechism that I was made memorized as a wee boy, the phrase is that it's a, a resting and untrusting in Christ. Whenever we are filled with doubts and filled with fears, where do we look? Do we look inwardly to see our own performance? Or do we look to the strong Savior who holds weak sinners like us and trust? and rest knowing that he has done more than we ever could. Why? Because our God is righteous. And that is such good news because it means that we don't need to constantly beat ourselves up but hold fast to the Savior who has done it all for us. And let's pray. Father, we praise you for the good news of the gospel. We could never have thought of something so wonderful or as freeing as this. Father, help us fix our eyes on Jesus and help us be concerned with him and his glory above our performance. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.